Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. On today's episode, I'm excited. I wanted to help our listeners with some tools to aid them in their evangelism as well as discipleship. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and 15, it reads, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed unto you, whether by word or by mouth or by letter. So the Bible encourages us to hold fast to the teachings that we receive from the apostles, which have gone through the early church fathers and thus deposited to modern-day Christians in the 21st century. One of the most common questions when dealing with our New Testament is do we have what they wrote, number one, and number two, are what they wrote accurate? So in other words, if we can't trust those who wrote the Gospels, they'll be difficult to trust what they said about Jesus Christ. Dr. Brent Petrie is a professor of sacred scripture at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is my hometown, Uh, He's also an author, and in his book, The Case for Jesus, uh, he speaks uh, concerning the veracity of the Gospels and why we can trust what we've been taught about Jesus Christ since the first century. So to help us to better understand uh, the teachings concerning the Gospels that we have, we have as our special guest today, uh, Dr. Brent Petrie. Dr. Petrie, how are you? I'm doing fine, Perseus. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for accepting the invitation. So my first question is, what motivated you to write this book? Uh, this book really is kind of the fruit of my own personal journey of, of uh, growing up a Christian, uh, growing up a Catholic Christian, and then going off to college and, and being shocked and kind of a little shaken in my faith by some of the things that I learned in a university setting about the origin of the Gospels. So, for example, when I was a young undergraduate, I, I, I remember taking a class on the Bible and being very excited about it. And one of the things that happened was when I first walked into that class, the professor said, you know, I want you students to forget everything you thought you knew <laughs> about the Gospels. You know, I, I know your Bible says the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but scholars today know that the Gospels were originally anonymous. In other words, that they were published without any names, and that they circulated for a hundred years without any titles or any names, uh, or anyone knowing who they were written by. And then only later, a hundred years later, did the early Church add those names to the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in order to give them authority. And because of this, uh, they said, you know, the Gospels are really more like uh, folklore, or like the end mm. product of a long game of telephone. I don't know if you mm. know the children's game telephone, where you sit around and you, one kid tells a story to the next kid, right. and by the time it's at the end of the circle, the story's completely changed. Right. Right. Uh, and that 
that that approach really really kind of shook my faith in the gospels or shook my understanding of them from a historic perspective because if if the gospels are are just folklore or the end product of a long chain of anonymous tradition but we don't know who really wrote them then how do we how can we trust that the substance of what they tell us about Jesus of Nazareth is really accurate so so I, now what happened was as I went off to uh, do more further study I did a master's at Vanderbilt and then I went and did my doctorate at uh, University of Notre Dame up in Indiana and as I studied more I, I learned that, in fact, what I had uh, heard as an undergraduate wasn't the case, that when you really get into the historical evidence, the actual evidence, the manuscript evidence, mm. ancient Greek copies of the Gospels, for example, the ancient manuscripts, what you'll find is there are precisely zero anonymous copies, uh, that, that some of the ideas that are out there circulating that are more skeptical toward the Gospels may be popular in, uh, in, in, in the academic world, but are not necessarily historically reliable. So in this book, what I wanted to do is lay out the case, the historical and biblical evidence for Christ that I had learned through my own journey of study from the time as a young college student all the way up now to being a, a college professor myself. Thank you for that response. I read through the book, and I was very encouraged, and the way you write is very uh, layman-friendly, so... People can pick it up and read it and understand uh, your perspective and what the Lord has inspired within you to help us defend our faith. Now, for well, those, you know, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say. Well, one of the reasons I appreciate that, Percy, is I, I did have, in particular, I wrote this book with college students in mind mm. because a lot of times what happens is, you know, at the university level, students only hear one side of the argument. They only hear the skeptic's perspective. They only hear the reasons to doubt the Gospels. They only hear the view that the Gospels are anonymous or that Jesus never really claimed to be divine. They never hear the counter-evidence, and mm. that's what I wanted to give in this book. And I, I wanted it to be both scholarly and research. It's backed up by a lot of research, but I also wanted it to be accessible and readable. It's definitely filled with a lot of facts, and that's what I appreciate about it. Uh, your graphs and your um, your charts I think are very helpful for those of us who engage in evangelism and uh, need the tools and, and the data to help back up our faith. So for those that are listening, the name of the book is The Case for Jesus, and uh, Brother Petrie gave us the subtitle, The Biblical and Historical Evidence for Christ. So my next question, uh, you, you dealt or you mentioned the anonymous uh, book argument and I, mm-hmm. I appreciate the highlight on that. How does that tie into uh, the early church fathers? Well, th- a great question. So one of the things that happened was for years, I myself accepted the theory that the Gospels were originally anonymous, and I worked under that theory until I started reading the early church fathers and started studying the manuscripts of the Gospels for myself. I remember going in as a Ph.D. student, wanting to find out a little bit more about the origins of the Gospels, and as I began to read the Church Fathers, I assumed that the Church Fathers would be—now, uh, these would be, by the way, these are Christians writing at the times that the Apostles are alive, in the mid to late first century, all the way through the second and third centuries A.D., right? So they, these are men who either knew the Apostles or who knew men who knew the Apostles, right? They're one, two generations removed from the Apostles at most. And I thought that they were going to be just as agnostic mm-hmm. about who wrote the Gospels as my professors were. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. When I began to read the writings of men like Papias, who was taught by the disciple John, 
or Irenaeus, who was taught by Polycarp, who was a student of the Apostle John. What I found was they were completely unanimous hmm. on the fact that two of the Gospels, Matthew and John, were uh, composed or originated with apostles of Jesus, the you know, members of the Twelve, and that two of the Gospels were attributed to disciples of apostles. Luke, the disciple of St. Peter, I'm sorry, Luke, the disciple of St. Paul, and then Mark, the scribe of St. Peter. Now, this wasn't an issue of the fathers being debating these things either. They just assume it. They, there's complete 100% unanimity among them. And that really shook me because I thought, well, wait a second. Where's all these anonymous texts that I learned about when I was in school? So then I went back to the manuscripts from that period, too. And then I also discovered that there are no anonymous manuscripts. Every single manuscript we have in Greek of the New Testament Gospels, and we have hundreds and even thousands of ancient New Testament manuscripts, uh, all of them to a person, I mean to a text, attribute the Gospels to the same titles that we have in our, in our English Bibles today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what I realized was not only does the internal evidence from the manuscripts point to the Gospels having been written by apostles, but this is important. The external evidence from the earliest Christians, the early church fathers, was likewise unanimous. And when you're doing history, you don't just work with internal evidence. If you want to find out who wrote a book in the ancient world, you have to use both internal and external evidence. And when that evidence agrees with one another, you've got a strong case for actually for authenticity, apostolic origins, and authenticity of the gospel. Excellent, excellent. Thank for sharing that. Um, to buttress your case, your argument, uh, yeah. the Gospel of John is an example. Uh, doesn't come straight out and say it's me, John, uh, yeah. the apostle. But as you're saying, through the other external evidence, we can be confident that it was written by yeah. John. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Although I would actually put it a little more strongly, uh, Percy. I would actually say that you got to look at the kind of books the Gospels are. So the Gospels, I have a whole chapter on this, the Gospels and ancient biographies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you compare ancient Greco-Roman biographies like uh, Josephus's autobiography or Plutarch's biography of great men or, or Suetonius, uh, he wrote a bunch of biographies of the various Caesars. What you'll find is that the Gospels look very much like ancient Greco-Roman biographies. And one of the things about ancient Greco-Roman biographies, for is that they were almost always not anonymous, because they wanted you to know who the author of the biography was so that you could understand how that author got access to his account of the life of, whether, uh, of a particular person that he's writing about. So, for example, there's a, a biography of a philosopher named Demonax, and it was Lucian, who's his student, who wrote it. So when you go to the Gospel of John, it's not just the external evidence, it's the title itself. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the phrase, Gospel according to John, is a title, it's the kind of biographical title you would find in ancient biographies, and it's in every single copy of the Gospel that we possess, mm-hmm. which tells you that there is some internal evidence. In fact, the title, just like today, if, I, you, know, if you want to say, well, who wrote this book, The Case for Jesus? There's two ways to find out. You open the book, you look inside, and there's a title right there, right? Uh, Grant Petrie. But if there's some reason to doubt that I wrote that book, you can consult external evidence. You can go to my contemporaries and ask them, did Brant Petrie write a book on Jesus? You can ask my wife, you can ask my student, (laughs) and they'd be able to tell you, well, yeah, he did, in fact, write it. And they'd be able to tell you that 40 years from now after I'm dead, wouldn't they? Right. Because that memory would be preserved. Right, right. Thank you. Um, my next question deals with, and I appreciate this chapter, uh, it's, it's a topic that comes up quite often, 
And as you mentioned in your book, it's sensationalized for the benefit of the world, but uh, we need to be able to put it in context for the world when we deal with it. And that's the whole subject of the so-called lost books of the Bible. Oh, Uh, yeah. (laughs) What are they, and how can we respond accordingly? Okay. So the the so-called lost Gospels uh, are frequently brought out by skeptics in order to try to show that Christians are being hypocritical in their trust toward the four Gospels of the New Testament. So these are ancient writings, uh, books like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Judas, or the Gospel of Peter. These are ancient writings that claim to have been written either by apostles or eyewitnesses to Jesus, uh, but which we know, in fact, are not uh, eyewitnesses to Jesus for a couple of reasons. First, uh, and this is really, really important, even skeptical scholars today admit that the so-called lost Gospels, uh, like, let's take one example, the Gospel of Thomas, which is a collection of 114 things of Jesus. Um, these books were not written until the late 2nd century A.D., and in some cases the 3rd or 4th centuries A.D. Now, I'm, I'm no professional mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that by the late 2nd century A.D., you've got basically 100 years have already passed since the last apostle died, right? Right, right. And, and so if all of the apostles have already died, then de facto, from the very fact of that, we know that these books cannot have been written by the apostles, right? Right. Because... It's very difficult to write when you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard enough to write when you're alive. It's That's even right. harder when you're dead. So, um, so in other words, even skeptics don't believe that these books were written by apostles because they're too late. They, they come from over a century after. But the other important point, Perseus, that I try to make in the book is the difference in external evidence as well. So yes, some of these books claim that they were written by Peter or by Thomas, or by Judas, although I don't know why Judas would be your guy if you right. want to make a gospel. <laughs> but um, but the, the difference is the external evidence, because when you look at the writings of the early church fathers, like Irenaeus or um, Eusebius, you know, they knew about these so-called lost gospels that the media act like are brand-new discoveries. These aren't new discoveries. We've known about them for almost 2,000 years. And what the church fathers said over almost 2,000 years ago, the second that they were released— and that they found out about them, they were also unanimously condemned as forgeries by the men who were the leaders of churches that had been founded by the apostles, mm. right? So the difference is the external evidence. The, like, for example, Irenaeus of Leon knew about the Gospel of Thomas, and he says, this is the forgery of a heretic, right? Mm. Because these documents were not part of the teaching that the apostles had handed down, just like you quoted from Second Thessalonians uh, 2, 5, 2.15 at the beginning of the program. These men were in the churches that the apostles had founded, and they knew which books the apostles had written and which books they hadn't written. So uh, there's no contest in terms of external evidence when it comes to the lost Gospels. But a lot of times, again, skeptics like to parade them around as if they're on an equal footing with the Gospels of the New Testament. And just, just from the perspective of history, not the perspective of faith, but just the perspective of history, that's simply false, because they're too late to have been written by apostles, and they were unanimously rejected as forgeries by the men who were apostolic uh, leaders of the apostolic church. So, in in regards to the book, uh, it's filled with great and dynamic facts that we can use to stand up against the uh, the world and and some of the skepticism. What else from the book um, 
that you you may want to share with our listeners in, in, in terms of uh, something that they may not be aware of that, that would be good for them in terms of evangelism? Oh, you know what I think is one of my favorite aspects of the book? Uh, well, there's two things that are really important for them uh, to get into. First, a large part of the book is devoted to the idea that Jesus never claimed to be God. That idea is gaining a lot of traction these days. There are a lot of people going around saying, oh, well, Jesus was a great prophet, or he was a good teacher. He may even have claimed to be the Messiah, but he never claimed to be God, right? And now, you know as well as I do that the, the Christian case stands or falls on whether Jesus claimed to be divine, right? right. I mean, this is, this is the central affirmation that God became man. Right. And so if Jesus never claimed to be divine, or he never acted as if he divine, then the Church immediately misunderstood him and, and, and distorted his message. So... I, I devote a number of chapters in the book to really looking at uh, the whole issue, did Jesus claim to be God? And what I try to show in the book is, although it is true, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus never went around saying, hey, everybody, I am God, in literal, you know, those three words, I am God. But he did claim to be God, but right. in a Jewish way. Right. In other words, you've got to remember, he's speaking to first-century Jews. He's a first-century Jew in a Jewish context. So what does he do? He uses the language and the words of Scripture to reveal his divinity to those who have the ears to hear him, and also to conceal it from his enemies until the moment is right for his crucifixion, right? So, for example, uh, just to take one example, uh, my favorite story of this is when um, Jesus walks on the water Mm -hmm. in Mark chapter 6. You know the story, right? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, he come, the disciples are out in the middle of the, of, the, of the Sea of Galilee. He comes to them walking on the water, and, and they're afraid. And he says to them, take heart, I am, ego and me, in the Greek. And then they get it, he, get into, he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly amazed. <laughs> now, some skeptics will say, oh, well, look, he doesn't say, I am God, right? So that's not a claim to be blind. But if you were a first-century Jew, you would know that in the Old Testament— when God appears to Moses on, in Exodus chapter 3 and reveals himself for the first time to Moses, what does he say to Moses? What does he say to Moses? Moses says to him, if I go to the Israelites and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I, I am. I am. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Say this to the people. I am. Ego me. Same words in the Greek Septuagint. Has sent me to you. Now, so in other words, I am is not just an expression meaning it's me. It's a divine name, right? right. If you have any doubts about that, look at the context. What is Jesus doing? He's walking on water. <laughs> right. He's not just taking a stroll. In other words, he's showing his power over creation by walking on the waters of the sea. It's just something that in the book of Job, chapter 8 and 9, it says that only God treads on the waves of the sea, mm. right? So, in other words, you've got to put Jesus' words in their Jewish context. Mm. And when you do that, what you will see is he is claiming to be divine, but he's doing it in a Jewish way. And that's why, of course, in, in Mark 15 or 14, that's why he is crucified. Because right. when, when the high priest says, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And how does that Jewish high priest react? He says, this man has blasphemed. Right? <laughs> right. Now, it's not—Perseus, this is really important. It was not blasphemy in the first century A.D. to claim to be the Messiah. Right. All the Messiah was was the long-awaited king of Israel. Right. Right? 
if it's blasphemy to claim to be the king, how are you going to know who the king is? <laughs> it doesn't right. make any But it was blasphemy to claim to be God. Mm. And when Jesus says he would be seated at the right hand of God, that would mean he would have equal authority with the Father. And when he says he's coming on the clouds, that's something only God does in the Old Testament, like in the book of Ezekiel. And they recognized that he was saying, I'm not just the Messiah, I'm also the divine Son of God. And that's why he was condemned. So the, it, the charge of blasphemy shows that Jesus claimed to be much more than a good teacher or just a prophet. He's claiming to be the divine Son of God. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense and very clear. So we thank you for that. I want to thank you again for sharing your knowledge and allowing the Holy Spirit to really move upon you to compose this book. I've been blessed just by reading it, and I'm sure our listeners are intrigued and excited uh, to hear about the knowledge that God has given you. Now, can you please share with us where they can obtain your, uh, your book? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. So they can get it at any bookstore. So you can get it online at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Or you can actually go to my website and get copies there. So it's BrantPetrie.com, B-R-A-N-T-P-I-T-R-E.com. And we actually have signed copies there if someone would like a copy with, with my signature and a little Bible verse just to, uh, just to make it personal for you. Excellent, excellent. See, our 25 minutes went by quickly. Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we can we can tell your enthusiasm that you have for uh, te- teaching and preaching God's word. So thank you so much for being on Sound Reasoning and sharing with our listeners. Uh, I would like to invite you back to talk about that section dealing with uh, the crucifixion. I oh yeah, we thoroughly could do another show on that. That would be we could look at the crucifixion, we could look at the resurrection too, whatever you'd like to do. Just let me know. Well, thank you so much, Brother Petrie, for your time and we will be in touch. Thank you, Brother Percy. Have a great day. God you, bless. Have a great day. That was Dr. Brant Petrie, uh, from Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, Louisiana, sharing with us the content of his new book, The Cakes for Jesus, the biblical and historical evidence for Christ. And in today's society, it's important that we do continue to magnify the Lord, that we do continue to share the gospel, and we need to continue doing for the truth what others do for a lie. The world is in need of Jesus, and we that know him, we must share the gospel as if though we are excited to have this Jesus in our life, as though we are excited to be born again, and we are excited to be renewed. Well, we pray that this show has been a blessing. Please consider being a financial partner, and we thank you all for listening until the next episode. If you wish, you can log on to our website, www.srministries.org. Have a blessed day. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. 
That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy messages has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. This is Chris Christensen, and back in 2006, I started a simple project, a project to try and introduce more people to the Bible through Bible study called the Bible Study Podcast. It's a simple name and a simple idea. Each week, every week, we study one chapter of the Bible, talk about what it says and what that might mean for us today. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for the Bible Study Podcast on your favorite podcast app.